Last week, we considered what the Old Testament has to say about God, the Creator. You may remember that Genesis 1 made clear that God was to be thought of as king of creation. He is presented as the one with sovereign rights over the realm he's made. It's his right to determine the names of the things that he's made. It was his right to determine the role each one was to play in the created realm. And that sovereignty extended not only over the physical realm, not only over the animal life he had created, it extended over mankind as well. The role of humanity in the created realm is clearly spelled out by the Creator. Mankind are endowed with the highest potential in the image of God himself and are told to rule over the earth. Obviously a kingly rule, not like an absolute monarch, as if it was mankind's role to determine the destiny of what he ruled over. But mankind's there as a subordinate king, one who is answerable to the God who gave him that dominion over everything else. And so we finished off last week with the picture from Psalm 8. That Psalm where we find a picture of what once was and what still ought to be. Man rejoicing in the beauty and the privileges of the realm he's been given lordship over. Saying to God, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. But most of the Old Testament is concerned with the world as it now is. We're no longer in the garden. We're no longer in paradise. We're no longer in the world where there is harmony uh, between man and his creator. We live in the world of the rebel king. Man who wants still to cling to the domain, still to cling to the privileges he was invested with by God the Creator, but at the same time denying the sovereign rights of the Creator. Well, we live in the world after the fall, after man had f- entered the trap, caught in the snare of thinking that he could become like God of thinking that he could act autonomously, be a law to himself, make up his own mind as to what was right and what was wrong for mankind. And it's a perpetual memorial to the grace of God our Creator that that act of rebellion did not lead to summary execution of the sentence of eternal judgment against humanity. Oh, that there was judgment, and there was immediate judgment. But the full effect of the judgment was suspended. Suspended so that God could reclaim his fallen creation for himself. God would not permit 
his sovereign rights over the realm that he had created to be wrested from him by the rebellion of man. He claimed for himself what was rightfully his. And that claim included even man who was in rebellion against him. If mankind will but submit to God and acknowledge his sovereignty over them, there is a way back, there is a way of restoration opened up. And it's the revelation and the outworking of that way of restoration that's the theme of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 on. And tonight we take it up from a particular angle, a particular aspect. Because in extending this offer of reinstatement, God uses the instrument of covenant to structure, to make clear the relationship that will exist between him himself and restored humanity. And it's the implications of that theme of the God of the covenant that I want to explore with you tonight. You may remember, again you may not, but I remember, that last week in the question and answer session, I, I, I was intrepid enough to say I'd never seen the doctrinal statement of the Christian Institute. And so, of course, I was no sooner out the door than I was provided with the doctrinal statement of the Christian Institute. And on opening it, I found there was a little pamphlet inside that said, Covenants to the Institute. Not just the doctrinal statement. But I suppose that nowadays, that's the context that most of us ordinarily meet the word covenant in. And it means, in that context, a formal agreement to do something. And this idea of a formal agreement between two parties is one that underlies the the use of the word covenant in so many translations of the Old Testament. But we're not getting the full implications of the word. Uh, We're not seeing the totality of the situation. If we take our ideas regarding what's involved in covenant out of its modern use, or out of the use of covenant in terms of the, the legal tradition of Western civilization, covenant in Old Testament is being used to represent something that was very much a a way of thinking and a way of acting in the ancient Near East. And it's as we begin to tease out the elements of that situation, we begin to get a far clearer and fuller understanding of what it is that's being said in the Old Testament. And this is one area where a great deal more knowledge has arisen in recent years particularly through archaeological discovery. Indeed, the impact of archaeological discovery uh, has been that covenants one area of Old Testament thought uh, for which there's been a a renewed appreciation in recent years. 
Not that covenant was ignored before, certainly not in Reformed circles. Uh, covenant theology was one of the main bulwarks of Reformed truth. And the new discoveries haven't threatened the old truths. Rather, they've led to an increased appreciation of some aspects of Scripture. Aspects that were evident to those to whom the scriptural message initially came. Aspects of the ancient world uh, that were commonplace uh, to the Israelites when they left Egypt, but which subsequent generations, lacking the knowledge that was once commonplace, uh, lost out on. Uh, through the discovery of the discoveries of archaeologists, we now know more about the world of Moses' day than the Jews of Jesus' time did. Our knowledge of the ancient past has increased remarkably. Mind you, what we don't know still outweighs what we do know. There are still great gaps. Some people tend to forget that. We have had a little bit more light, but by no means have we had it all. So what we know now has enabled us to enter into the Old Testament message. It's also had a side effect in that it has undermined many of the theories of liberal criticism. One of the things that the critics made a great play of toward the end of last century and in the, the first part of this century was that covenant was a late idea in the thinking of Israel and that it was then introduced into the earlier books of Scripture that were written up at a much later date than the time they purport to tell of. There still are some who are trying to maintain the, the previous critical position, but really the findings of archaeology have undermined it, have taken from it whatever plausibility it might once have had. In looking at covenant, we're going back to the way in which God began to educate his people regarding the relationship between himself and them. What then is being mentioned? What are we focusing on when we're talking about covenant? It's a formal agreement, yes, but there were many types of formal agreement in the ancient world just as there are many types of formal agreement nowadays. It's one particular type that's of significance for biblical studies. Covenant was used by the emperors um, of the ancient world. They're often called suzerains. Uh, they, they had to administer empires, vast empires, and if they conquered another nation, or if another nation saw what was coming and said we give in before the, the enemy army arrived on their doorsteps, then the great king, that was what they called their emperors. You can see that usage in, in Isaiah, uh, chapter 36, uh, where the spokesman of the king of Assyria talks about his master as the great king the king of Assyria, the great king, the emperor, entered into a covenant with the lesser king, the vassal king of the domain he had conquered. 
There was a stated and a formal pattern in the treaty documents that were drawn up. They began with a preamble in which the great king identified himself. It was done in grandiose terms. Not only did he tell who his father and his grandfather were, he told of, his, of the gods whom he worshipped and the gods who had favoured him. And having identified himself, the great king then presented an historical prologue in which he identified all the benefits he had conveyed on the nation with whom he was making this covenant. It takes quite a bit of ingenuity to translate, I've defeated you, into I am conveying a great blessing upon you. Uh, But politicians of all ages are quite adept at that sort of transformation. After the historical prologue, there was a, a third major item. The king said, the great king said, in the light of all these benefits I've bestowed on you, here are the duties and obligations that I impose on you. The covenant was used as the means whereby the great king could say to the subject people, I'm your benefactor. Look at all I've done for you. Now, here's how I want you to live. And if you live this way, I will continue to favor you. I will continue to protect you. All will be well. In the world of Moses' day, we have evidence to show that covenant was about the great king administering the affairs of peoples whom he claimed for himself. There were other features in ancient treaties. Can I just mention three of them briefly? There would be a list of blessings and curses. Uh, The great king would say, these are the blessings that will come to this people if they obey me, and here are the curses that I invoke from the gods on them if they disobey me. In the treaty documents, there was normally also a provision made whereby a copy of the treaty, well, there were two copies of the treaty, one would be deposited in the temple of the god of the great king, and the other would be deposited in the temple of the vassal king, and it had to be taken out at regular intervals and read in public so that the treaty obligations would ever be uh, before the minds of the vassal people. And there'd also be a list of witnesses to the covenant, listing all the gods and goddesses of both parties and calling on them not only to witness that the covenant had been made, but calling on them also to punish anyone who broke the terms of the covenant. So a treaty would be made, a covenant would be made between the great king and the king of the subject people. And what the vassal king agreed to and did worked for the good or for the ill of all his subjects. The people of the conquered nation, the nation the treaty was made with, didn't individually enter into a direct covenant with the great king. The the difficulties of communication, the difficulties of administration in, in the ancient world made that impracticable. The great king left the administration of his realm in the hands of the vassal kings. And their subjects swore loyalty to them. 
And insofar as their own king's laws and policies reflected what the great king demanded, so they lived as citizens of whatever empire. Now God was pleased to adopt this usage to teach his people about himself. There were many aspects of this political metaphor that conveyed vital truth about God's relationship to his people. We mustn't, of course, make the mistake of supposing that the political metaphor determines the message of Scripture. As with all comparisons, as with all illustrations, uh, there are some points that are closer and there are some points that aren't covered at all. The biblical use of covenant in relation to God's dealings with mankind goes far further than merely copying at a spiritual level the political arrangements of the ancient world. But it's still a useful starting point in understanding God's way of salvation because it's a way of understanding it that's validated by Scripture itself. So how do we go about trying to move from what knowledge we've gained about how political affairs were administered in the ancient world to understanding how that metaphor, how that illustration is used in Scripture itself to teach us regarding God's way of salvation. The first thing to be emphasized is that the covenant was granted by a suzerain by the great king. And that title is used of God in Scripture. In Psalm 47, he is presented as great king over all the earth. In Psalm 95, he's called great king above all gods. Jerusalem is known as the city of the great king in Psalm 48. And that's a use that Jesus himself copies in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5. So that when you see that title, Great King, it's got a particular covenant background to it. It's it's not just saying that God is King of Kings, although it is saying that, because he is King over all the earth. But it's saying that the administration of his kingdom is a covenant administration. And that pertains particularly to the fact that salvation is sovereignly granted. That is one of the features that's emphasized and preserved in covenant. You see, you didn't negotiate a peace treaty with the great king, whether it was the king of the Hittites or the king of the Assyrians or the king of whatever ancient empire whether a people had been defeated in battle, or whether they had voluntarily submitted to the great king's rule through recognizing the inevitable. What happened was they came and they heard the terms that he dictated to them. And the parallel holds between God and man. There can be nothing like a parity treaty 
one between equals. Oh, there were those in the ancient world. When the Hittites and the Egyptians entered into political negotiations, they did so as equals. And the treaty took on quite a different form. But the treaty of the overlord, of the suzerain, wasn't one that was worked out at a conference table between equals. It wasn't one that came out of some process of negotiation to find a mutually acceptable bargain. Man isn't voluntarily at the conference table with God. He is summoned by the great king and has no option but to submit or perish. Now we heard earlier Genesis 15 being read. In Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, the details of the the Abrahamic covenant are set out. It begins with the announcement in Genesis 15, 7. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And that statement in verse 7 of chapter 15 of Genesis is identified as a covenant statement. It follows, on a certain scale, on a smaller scale, the basic pattern of covenant thought. There is identification of the great king. I am the Lord. And there is the historical connection. It's not I am the Lord who's approaching you now for the first time and whom you've never heard of before. It's I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. It was a relationship that had been initiated by God. It wasn't that Abraham wanted to move from Ur. It was the Lord who called him with a view to providing universal blessing through Abraham. Elsewhere in scripture, particularly in Joshua chapter 24, we have very clear testimony to the background out of which Abraham came. From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, that's beyond the Euphrates, and they served other gods. The gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. From a polytheistic background, from a background of paganism, Abraham was called by the sovereign intervention of the great king. And the Lord reminds Abraham that he, the Lord, had already done this. And he'd done it with a purpose, to give you this land to take possession of it. It wasn't going to be a matter confined to a few years. It wasn't even going to be a matter confined to Abraham personally. When the great kings of the empires made their covenants, they always stamped them forever, in perpetuity. They didn't envisage that the arrangements that they were making uh, would be broken, uh, would fall away. When God makes such arrangements, unlike the kings of this earth, his arrangements are not only stamped forever, uh, they are uh, forever wasn't for one generation alone. It was extended to subsequent generations also. God comes 
And when he makes covenant, he tells Abraham what future he holds for him. You will go to your fathers in peace. He tells Abraham what future there'll be for his posterity. There'll be 400 years servitude and then return to the land. To your descendants, I have given this land. Now, what was happening there? Well, you saw when we read the chapter that it was an Abraham plagued with doubt and uncertainty that the Lord was speaking to. He he began, Abraham began by saying, who is going to be my heir? I've got this promise from God, but I'm not sure how it's going to work out. And again in verse 8, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? Covenant is used by God as the instrument of his sovereign administration of salvation to give certainty, to give assurance to those who are his. It's not just that God says, I will reclaim. He says, here is how I'm going to reclaim. I commit myself to it. You may be sure of it. He guarantees his salvation. And it is in this way, as the God of covenant, that the Old Testament church was taught how to view God. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's the phrase, loving kindness and truth. I I hesitate to tell you what the word loving kindness really is, but it's probably worth hearing. It's the word chesed. And it's a word that's virtually untranslatable because we haven't got any word or couple of words that will readily run together to translate it. Indeed, when the Revised Standard Version was originally translated, it was a matter that the translators left to the very end because they viewed it so difficult Uh, And that was just what rendering they were going to use for this word chesed. You'll find loving kindness is one translation. Covenant love is another translation. Uh, Different scholars try to catch the emphasis in it. But it is one of the characteristics of God that are found time and again throughout the Old Testament. This Covenant love and truth, faithfulness, this reliable covenant word. It is a Kesed is looking at God as the God who has committed himself, as the God who wonderfully and graciously has made known to his people the way in which he is operating, the nature of the relationship he has formed and who can be relied on to live up to the terms of that relationship. Well, we'll come back to that uh, in a moment or two. But that was just the message. That covenant message was just the one that Abraham needed to deal with his doubt and his uncertainty. God came and said, I am the God who am as committed to what I am doing to you 
as the great kings are committed to the treaties that they impose on their vassals. Now we saw in Genesis 15 that there was this ceremony of the covenant. Not everyone's agreed about its significance. So I'll tell you the question I don't want to be asked because I don't know the answer to. Uh, And that is, I do not know why the two birds were not cut up like the other animals. And I venture to suggest no one else knows the answer to it either. But we do know that passing through the pieces of a slain animal was a rite that was used in the ancient world to initiate a covenant. There are archaeologists have found examples. There's been one example where uh, there, there was a political storm over whether the animal that should be cut in two to ratify a certain treaty was going to be a goat or a donkey. Uh, sometimes when it was a treaty about something that wasn't terribly important, uh, it needn't necessarily be an animal. In one case it's recorded it was, it looks like something like lettuce or cabbage that was split in two. <laughs> now, we have one clear instance within Scripture. In Jeremiah chapter 34, where this sort of rite was gone through. Uh, the people of Jerusalem were under siege from the Babylonians, and they'd made a covenant to free their slaves. And then as soon as the Babylonians lifted the siege, they went back on their word, on their covenant. And God talks of the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me. I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf, I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Indeed, the Old Testament term for making a covenant, found in Genesis 15 verse 18, is cut a covenant because of this ceremony. The animal was cut in two. Those who were entering into the covenant went between the pieces, and in doing so they were enacting something like, if I break the terms of this covenant, may the same thing happen to me also. And the wonder in the Abrahamic covenant is that it's the theophanic form of the flaming torch coming out of the smoking firepot that goes through the pieces. Not Abraham. It's the overlord, the suzerain, who undertakes to ratify and make sure that the covenant will be preserved perpetually. Abraham's a passive spectator. Not only were the arrangements divinely devised, they were divinely guaranteed in a way that you wouldn't find any of the overlords of this world stooping to. We have here a measure of the divine condescension of God speaking to the needs of Abraham and of all those who are children of Abraham by faith, saying, look, I am the one who have devised this salvation and I am the one who guarantees it. So we have there the unilateral, if you like big words, the monergistic origins and maintenance of the covenant. 
But it would be wrong to suppose that there was no human response required. Genesis 17 must be read along with Genesis 15. It's the second part of the Abrahamic covenant. It's still a matter of divine sovereignty. Once again in Genesis 17, we see God the sovereign, the one who can come and change Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. That is the sign of one in authority. That is the sign, the mark of an overlord dealing with one who is his vassal. But there is more spelled out. I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm, I prefer to translate it, so that I may maintain my covenant between me and you and so that I may greatly increase your numbers. The maintenance and the enjoyment of covenant blessing would be by the pathway of Abraham's obedience. Abraham's conduct was required for his continued enjoyment of the covenant. That feature is spelled out even more clearly in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19, where God bears this testimony. He says, I have chosen Abraham in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken to him about. Abraham, sovereignly brought into the covenant, the covenant sovereignly guaranteed, and yet that covenant has to be enjoyed in the pathway of obedience. It is not an automatic matter that man within the covenant is therefore secure. That security is known and enjoyed only by obedience. That's a feature of divine covenants that's spelled out much more clearly in connection with the Davidic covenant. You'll find it in Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 to 16, and also in Psalm 89, which is a poetic meditation on the Davidic covenant. Can I just read a bit of Psalm 89? Speaking of the king, If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness, my chesed, my covenant commitment from him nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. The words of God, the great king, are secure. The covenant commitment he has made is inviolable, but the enjoyment of covenant blessing is always conditioned on covenant obedience. Same features are also found when we move on to the Mosaic Covenant. You'll find it set out in briefest form between Exodus chapter 19 
in Exodus chapter 24. We see here again that though many are affected by this covenant, it's through one individual that the covenant's mediated to mankind. In Abraham's case, it was a covenant with Abraham, but it was going, its significance was going to extend to all his descendants. And God promised that those descendants were going to be as numerous as the stars or as the sand on the seashore. In Moses' case, Moses is there representing the nation. But they are all involved in it. They said, the nation had said to Moses, Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. I think it's significant that covenant blessing is mediated in this way. It seems to me to foreshadow very clearly the new covenant and its mediator, through whom alone we can approach God. We're not at the conference table. It's the mediator who is there. What he accepts and undertakes on our behalf enables us to enter into the benefits of the new covenant by being vitally joined to him by faith. If we look at elements of the Mosaic covenant, we can see God as the overlord, particularly in the preamble to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. The historical resume is found in the rest of that verse. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God had said the same thing earlier in Exodus 19 verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The covenant was being made with those whom God had already saved. God had already been active in their lives. He had already drawn them out of Egypt. And he was now formalizing that relationship. Teaching them what was involved in being his people. Giving to them an understanding of how it was that they should live. And there is therefore specification of the terms of the relationship from their point of view. In summary, it's in verses 5 and 6 of Exodus 19. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Words is a technical term there. That was what was used in the secular treaties for the terms of the overlord's stipulations in the covenant. And that's how the Old Testament refers to the Ten Commandments. They're never called the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. They are always the Ten Words. And words has the specific meaning there of covenant stipulation. Now, notice where the ten words begin. You shall have no other gods before me. This is undoubtedly a major factor 
in the adoption of covenant language. God wanted to teach Israel about the sort of relationship they had to have with him. And Israel lived in the ancient world, a polytheistic environment. All the other nations had a multiplicity of gods, a pantheon. Israel was being called to make a complete break from the surrounding practice. They were to worship the one and only true God. And it was from the political arena that a vivid illustration of what was involved in that bond could be drawn. In the ancient world, you couldn't even use the marriage relationship for it because of the prevalence of polygamy. But if there was one thing that the conquerors of the ancient world hammered home to their subject people, it was this. Don't get involved in an alliance with anyone apart from me. The power politicians made very clear this message. You mustn't take any action inimical to my interests. You mustn't in any way compromise your political loyalty to the great king. And it was that message that was so very evident in the power politics of the ancient world that the covenant reminded Israel of. There was no scope in the covenant arrangements of the great king for dubiety about where the loyalty of his people should be. In the ancient world, Israel's unique in using the political language of covenant for their relationship with their God. Because the political language of covenant implied a bond, a relationship with only one great king. And none other of the surrounding nations were in any way near to making that claim. Covenant spoke to Israel of a unique engagement with the Lord. Can I just mention something else in passing? I've been talking there about the political vocabulary of the ancient world. And that's used extensively in the Pentateuch particularly. There's, for instance, that word murmur. It occurs in the authorised version as murmur. I think it's grumble in the NIV. But it describes the, the discontented attitude that the Israelites frequently adopted towards God in their wilderness journeys. Got here one passage, Numbers 14, verses 26 and 27. It must be from the AV. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Now, see, that's another sort of behavior that was forbidden in the land of vassal kings. The great king made sure there was no seditious talk. People weren't allowed to give voice to any of the complaints to murmur against the great king. How much more should Israel, who had no valid grounds of grievance against what the Lord had given to them, how much more should they not 
uh, be found murmuring against the great king. And political vocabulary is also found in a passage such as visiting the, the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me and showing covenant love, chesed, to thousands of those who love me. Love is not emotion there. Love was the language that was used of keeping the terms of the covenant. And hatred was used of departing from it. Throughout these books, the language, the political language, is being used time and again to emphasize the religious message. Turn the tape over at this point. It's also worthwhile to spend a moment or two to considering just where the giving of the law comes in Israel's journey. The people have left Egypt. They've been divinely guided through the waters of the Red Sea. And it's the redeemed people of the Lord who are presented at Sinai with all that's involved in the relationship that their saviors bestowed on them. You see, God's law is often presented as negative, restrictive, something to be shunned, something unfortunate. And so it is to the natural human heart. The rebel doesn't want to hear the demands of the sovereign God from whom he's rebelled. But you see, God doesn't have two laws. His standards don't vary. When the law is brought to Israel, it is a representation of the same set of standards by the same unvarying God. But they're not presented as a means of acquiring salvation. Israel's already quit of Egypt's bondage. Israel have already come through the Red Sea and their enemies have been engulfed by the returning waters. The law is then given to them to show them the boundaries of the relationship they've entered into. The message is don't transgress these boundaries if you wish to continue to enjoy divine favor. The negative form of the law is no more to be decried than the negative form of the notice you see on the clifftop saying, Danger, do not proceed further. That is in reality an invitation to continue enjoying and exploring in safety the territory you're already in. God had brought Israel into relationship with himself. He had brought them out of their bondage into freedom. And he is setting the law around them as a hedge and saying, keep within this area, don't go over the edge. Keep within this area and go on enjoying all that I have given to you. Now, over the centuries, it's been common to divide the Ten Commandments into two groups. Four concerning our duty toward God and six concerning our duty toward our fellows. And that's no doubt a valid division. I think one can justify it on the basis of 
Christ's own summary of what are the two major commandments of the law. But frequently it's been mixed up with the expression of of the two tables of the law. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. See, I mentioned earlier the practice of the great kings. When they made a covenant, they made two copies. One went to the temple of their God. One went to the temple of the vassal king's God. And it's now become quite commonplace with considerable justification to think of the two tablets of the testimony uh, that were given uh, on Sinai not as two stone tablets stopping one after commandment four and the other having command the other six commandments on it, but two tablets, both of them having all the commandments. This coming out of the, the political metaphor behind covenant. And then both of them being put in the Ark of the Covenant, because in Israel's case, there wasn't the, the schizophrenia uh, that existed in the secular model. The, temp- the place where Israel's God was found it was in the Ark of the Covenant. There was no possibility of a division between the overlord's temple and the vassal's temple. I mention that it's not in any way decisive, but it's one feature that many people have found very plausible, and I'm among them, um, as to why there were two stone tablets, that it reflected the way in which covenants were actually made in Moses' day. And can I just in passing point out one other thing that often puzzles people? Particularly when I talk to them this way, they say, but just how would the ordinary Israelite have picked up on all these things? Just how would they have been aware of the structures of the treaties of the great kings? Now, I don't know about you, but I know I've often seen on television statesmen signing international treaties. You know, they're there and the pen doesn't quite work and they're all bound up in red leather and things like that. But I've never actually read one of those treaties. If you told me this is the text of the international treaty that was signed between the United States and Russia or wherever, I couldn't look at it and say, well, that doesn't look like an international treaty to me because I've never seen the text of an international treaty. But it was different in the ancient world because the requirement was that these be publicly read. People were, ordinary people, were much more familiar with their language and content than we are nowadays with the content of international treaties. I think the situation's rather like what I perceive to be that of the average American's familiarity with the language of the Declaration of Independence, a formal document that they've all got, perhaps even we have, a slight smattering of. Uh, I was going to say it's far more like the Americans' um, understanding of the Declaration of Independence than I suspect the average Englishman's acquaintance with Magna Carta. I see that as a Scotsman, so I, <laughs> I know even less about Magna Carta, but there we are. In the ancient world, these treaties were read. The language 
was language that ordinary people knew about. When these things were found in the first five books of the Old Testament and later on repeated, it was something that they picked up on. It made an impact on them. And this public repetition was to be part of Israel's practice also. That's what the whole of the book of Deuteronomy is about. It's an act of covenant renewal. It's an act of recital of all the overlord's requirements. To such an extent that in Deuteronomy 5 and 3, Moses can say, it was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. They hadn't been there 40 years before at Sinai. But the covenant being renewed, the perpetuity of the Lord's arrangements, meant that it was binding in subsequent generations, just as it had been originally. In each and every generation, the covenant message was to be repeated so that they too could affirm their loyalty. Deuteronomy 31 requires the covenant to be read at the end of every seven years during the Feast of Tabernacles when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God. That's what Moses was doing shortly before his death. That's what we find Joshua doing at Shechem in Joshua 24, repeating the covenant. Not much is made of the covenant witnesses in Scripture. It was rather difficult. In the secular treaties, the covenant witnesses were all the gods and goddesses. The nearest Scripture can get to it is the language of heaven and earth. Deuteronomy 30.19 This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you. Or Deuteronomy 31.28, call heaven and earth to testify against them. And so Moses began his final song, listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. And that means that when later on you're reading in the the prophets and you hear heaven and earth mentioned, They're being mentioned as covenant witnesses. That's where Isaiah begins. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. It's not just a fine poetic figure of speech. It is saying, let those who, the heavens and the earth that witnessed the covenant engagement that the Lord entered into with his people, now bear witness to the extent to which his people have broken the terms of the covenant. There's another aspect of the covenant situation I'd just like to mention, and that was the ceremony of ratification. We saw in Genesis that with Abraham, there were the animals split in two, apart from birds, and the theophanic vision went through their midst. In Exodus, there's another ceremony. And to be truthful, it's not fully understood yet. In Exodus 24, a sacrifice is offered. Moses sprinkles half the blood of the sacrificial victims on the altar and the other half on the people themselves. Perhaps it was on the 12 pillars that represented the people, but the other half's on the people themselves. And we can see the altar as representing the Lord's side of the agreement. We can see the blood on the people as representing their assent. But what did it mean? 
At first sight, there doesn't seem to be any parallel in the rest of Scripture. At least with the animals cut in two, we can look at Jeremiah 34 and get quite clear guidance on what was being symbolized there. And there have been quite a number of theories put forward as to the significance of this blood of sprinkling. I think there's two things that are are helpful in this connection. The only other place where I can find blood sprinkled in the Old Testament on people in that way is when Aaron and his sons are consecrated to the priesthood in Leviticus chapter 8, where Moses took some of the blood from the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and their garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and their garments. It is a setting apart of the people. It is not just indicating their assent to the terms of the covenant. It is a solemn setting apart of them as the people holy to the Lord. And that fits in with the other clue that this ceremony of covenant sprinkling is nested within a narrative that begins with the description of Moses, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders going up the mountain. And after the ceremony, they do go up the mountain and they see a vision of the Lord himself. It is not only the, it is the people to whom the covenant's been granted that spiritual privilege accrues, but it's as they are a consecrated people as they are set apart to the Lord's service by the blood of the covenant, that they're able to, in the person of the 70 elders, ascend the mountain and see God, in the person of the 70 elders, eat and drink a sacred meal, enjoying the presence and the company of God. So that while there are parallels between the secular covenants and the relationship that God has to his people, the scriptural usage is always breaking out of the bounds of the political metaphor. And especially that's true in terms of the quality of the relationship. A suzerain-vassal relationship is often something that is cold, something that is harsh, something that the suzerain is engaging in only to see how much tribute or how many mercenary soldiers he can get out of the vassal people. Sometimes even the secular treaties use the language of father and son, use the language of human relationships. But in the scriptural covenant, that takes on a greater dimension. The bond is not one of exploitation. The bond is not one of a cold and distant relationship. Covenant in scripture speaks very much more clearly than any of the secular covenants ever did of the quality of the relationship. Because the Lord had said, Israel is my firstborn son. Moses in Deuteronomy bears testimony to how the Lord their God had carried them just as a man carries his son. He talked about the Lord disciplining the people just as a father disciplines his son. In Deuteronomy 32, is he not your father who bought you? Uh, There is a deeper element 
to the relationship. Mind you, the language of father has to be heard in Old Testament terms, much more of authority in the language of father than there is in the modern use of it. But it is still pointing to the personal relationship. And above all, there is the aim for the covenant people, not merely of obeying the terms of the covenant, but of becoming like the God of the covenant. And here there is no parallel in the secular language at all. In the covenant bond that is held before the people, there is the goal of likeness to God himself. How often it is that they are told, be ye holy, because I am holy. This is of the essence of the scriptural picture of covenant. I've just chosen one set of verses from Leviticus 26, verses 12 and 13. First of all, there's set out the three basic elements of the covenant relationship. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your God, you will be my people, and there will be communion and fellowship. I will walk among you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. It is a picture of the dignity of those in covenant with God, those who have been freed by him. And Paul's very happy to use the same language in New Testament terms in 2 Corinthians 6. Oh, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Covenant covenant of the great king is about relationships. It is about the relationship that he forges between himself and his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. But that relationship in and of itself isn't the end. That relationship is the means whereby God will restore his creation. It is the means whereby God will bring fallen humanity back into a living relationship of fellowship with himself. I will walk among you. I will dwell among you. It is a picture of harmony restored in the fallen creation. Now I'll say something more about the new covenant and the New Testament implications of covenant. Perhaps when we discuss God of promise. But I want to emphasize that no talk and covenant can be complete without bringing in its consummation. And that's not in the New Testament as so much as in heaven hereafter. 
the covenant bond, the covenant relationship, although it's partially realized in the reality of the New Testament church, awaits the New Jerusalem hereafter. And the end of the covenant story is found in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There is the consummation of the covenant. God himself will be their God. They will be his people. God will be with them. And the old order will totally pass away. The creator will have reclaimed his creation in the consummation of his covenant arrangements. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed once again. Professor Mackay for that talk. Now there is time um, for questions and comment uh, and I invite those people who'd like to, to do so. Don't be shy. Yes? Can you speak a little bit more about the significance of, of blood in the um, sacrificial process? Well, I'm thinking of is the connection with Jesus and the new covenant. Could you please step up and please? Come back to the fifth lecture. I'm going to do it then. <laughs> I was rather thinking when we were going to discuss the God of worship, I was hoping to cover both the sacrificial element of worship in the Old Testament and the praise of God that's uh, typified by the Psalms. But seeing you've mentioned it, I'll I'll have a trail, exactly. Um, Blood speaks of life. And basically, when in the garden, the command was given, the threatening was given, in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Fallen mankind is uh, therefore has forfeited their life, signified by blood, uh, through the fall and through sin. And that penalty has of course to be met by the substitute. In the Old Testament the sacrificial offerings indicated this. It's a question I want to think about with you, the extent to which the people of the Old Testament actually knew that they indicated this. But the blood certainly spoke to them of a life forfeited on their behalf. And that life forfeited on their behalf was 
in the first instance, that of the animal that was slain. And that was a foreshadowing of the only blood that could actually in any way measure up to the situation of man's fallenness and of man's penalty before God. Where I think your questions come from, (laughs) if I can do some mind reading, uh, is the fact, what is the relationship between that sacrificial blood and, say, the blood of sprinkling that's mentioned there in Exodus 24? There isn't very much made of blood in Genesis 15. The animals are split, and it must obviously have been a a lot of blood around. There were the vultures. They'd been attracted. They they were circling around the pieces of the animals. Uh, the, the, The use of the blood in Exodus 24 seems to me to be based on the truths about sacrificial blood in general, but to be a specific use of it in a particular context. And... I, I'm more hesitant about interpreting Genesis 20, Exodus 24 than I am about Genesis 15. But it seems to me that the blood there being sprinkled, I mean, the blood was sprinkled a lot in Old Testament sacrifices, but it normally focused on the altar. It focused on the sacred things. Nowhere else does it come onto the, the worshipper apart from that consecration ceremony uh, with Aaron and his sons. And although... Well, I think it was true even to the ancient mind. If I sprinkled you with blood in Moses' day, you wouldn't normally react positively to the experience any more than you would now. It's only in a particular context that that speaks of consecration, that that speaks of cleansing. And that context can only be understood in terms of the blood signifying a great deal more, even though it isn't spelled out clearly in the Old Testament scriptures. There, there is a silence there, a silence that I think has to be attributed to the fact that the Old Testament is in very real sense the age of darkness. Although there was a terrific amount of light in Israel compared to the other nations, it's still the case that Israel lived in comparative spiritual darkness, comparative spiritual darkness regarding the truths of God compared to the light that we now have. And if we only think about it, the light that we now have is but darkness compared to the light that we will one day have. Uh, I see through a glass darkly, then I shall see face to face. And I think that often we can see more of the connection looking back on these ancient ceremonies than perhaps Israel could fully articulate in their own historical situation. I don't know if that's a trailer or a substitute for what I was going to do. I certainly hope it doesn't deter you from coming to that lecture. Right. Any other points that uh, people want to raise? I always look to Reg. <laughs> yes? Would you like to say something about the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, then. Yes, 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 yes. I I haven't quite got the question that I was expecting to come, but I'm sure somebody will supply it in just a moment. I I managed to speak about covenant without mentioning the word once, but I'm sure you'll get what I'm talking about. Uh, Yes. The, The problem actually starts 
in the Old Testament, and I didn't discuss, what is the relationship between the Mosaic and the Abrahamic covenant? I mentioned them as two covenants displaying a certain number of similar truths that are quite basic and that are general to the Christian faith. I personally view the Sinai covenant as a development of particular aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. Abram was promised a seed. Abram was given the general direction, uh, walk before me and be perfect, be complete. But that had to be articulated much more particularly when it came to the nation. Later on, there's the Davidic covenant that draws out aspects of what had been promised to Abraham, kings will come from you, and also aspects of what had been set up at Sinai in Deuteronomy. There's considerable talk about what sort of king Israel was going to have if they were going to have a king at all. These elements all move forward. And the new covenant recognizes that the previous covenant administrations were not final, that they were anticipatory, that they were moving towards something that would consummate and complete them. And that is called the new covenant. At first, it seemed to focus very much on the restoration from the exile. When the people came back from the exile, they thought things were going to go great for them. And then they had to, re- they had to be taught and to realize that although coming back from the exile was a type, was a symbol of the new covenant, it wasn't the true reality of what their prophets had been talking about. And that comes with Christ. Uh, covenant can't be avoided in the New Testament because it's there at the very heart of the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, And I also would think and would claim that Jesus' language concerning the kingdom of God is covenant language because I see covenant as being integrally linked with God the King. Uh, This is the point. God the king who sovereignly created. God the king who sovereignly redeems. By Jesus' day, um, the language of covenant was old-fashioned. It was no longer a current metaphor. It worked in Moses' day. It worked even in the days of the great prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Because the ancient empires of their day were still covenant-style empires. By the time you get to Jesus' day, that form of a political administration passed away. It was no longer a current metaphor. If he talked about covenant, it was very much just a religious word. And Jesus instead emphasized the kingdom of God. Are the Greek class back in just now? No, no, no. Well, they say Greek has a word for it, but my understanding is that Greek doesn't have a word for emperor or empire. You see, the Romans had a thing about kings. They'd had a, it was something that was ingrained into the Roman psyche. Kings were bad. 
And therefore, when they got a king in the forms of Julius Caesar and Augustus, they had to think up another name. And they thought up the word imperator, emperor. Jesus, when he's talking about the kingdom of God, to my mind, is using a current political metaphor that we perhaps catch more if we talked about the empire of God. Because it was the Roman Empire that was the the current political reality of his day. And there is an ongoing contrast between the Roman Empire and God's empire. And this is very much emphasizing the sovereignty of God, the nature of God, God who is gracious, God who is love, God who shows compassion and kindness, brought up to date. And the fact that covenant isn't mentioned quite so much in the New Testament as in the Old is not because it's not there. It's because the language of the metaphor has changed. The the reality is still there, although in a form that matches up to the new uh, situation. No longer in the comparative darkness of Old Testament times, now in the apostolic age, living in the light of the the risen Christ. And I still have managed to avoid what I was wanting. Frank, are you going to ask the question that Professor Mark kind of wants to be asked, or is it something different? No, I can't read his mind, so I don't know what the question is. Okay. I have a question. Um, in Genesis 16, I mean 15. 15. Uh, Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 19 verse 19 verse 18 mm-hmm. it says that on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants I will give this land there seems to be um, a difference there that I know from Dr. Francis Schaeffer and his tapes on interpretation of prophecy and his exegesis or revelations he says there's a difference between natural Israel and spiritual Israel. There's always the land given to natural Israel. (laughs) Now, this is a whole aspect of Old Testament truth. When God created man, he placed him in the garden. And that was part of the very good creation of God. Man requires an area, a space that is his own, and an area and a space where he can enjoy fellowship with God. Man is placed in the garden, given a task in the garden, and enjoys fellowship in the garden. That's normally understood from coming out of God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, as something that Adam and Eve expected to happen. And the story of reclaimed mankind is a story of getting, well, almost getting back to the garden. It's getting back to the garden a little bit more. Man who's fallen is driven out of the garden, loses to a certain extent the security of the garden and the fellowship that he enjoyed there with God. When Abraham is given the, first of all, he's told back in Genesis 12, uh, to your descendants I will give this land, in Genesis twelve seven. the land is being pointed out as the place where Abraham will enjoy fellowship with God. 
one of the remarkable things about the patriarchal narratives is that you find them building lots of altars, but they're in the promised land. They don't build altars when they're in Egypt or when they're wandering. It's the land that they see associated with God's presence. So the land to ancient Israel, whether it's is speaking of fellowship restored with God. And to a certain, in a certain extent, that is achieved after the conquest, when Israel comes into the land, especially when the Jerusalem temple's built and God's Shekinah cloud of glory presence comes into the temple. And yet all of that is just symbol. They weren't looking for an earthly city, they were looking for a heavenly city. They saw through the outward form of the land, which was the place of restored blessing with God. And that's why Palestine is described in such magnificent terms, land flowing with milk and honey, a land uh, that, that is very rich. It is anticipating uh, heaven, in fact. It, it, when God restores, he restores us uh, to the, 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 the full potential that he's originally endowed mankind with. And we, we, we are not spirits, we are body and spirit. We're always in a place. We're never omnipresent like God. And in a place, we, we need a place to be in. The garden provided it. The land of Israel provided that by way of anticipation, by way of symbol. It was real land. It was, it was real blessing. But it was a blessing that spoke of the far greater blessing beyond itself. And so there is this specification of the land uh, a number of times, uh, particularly there in Genesis 15. At one level, it is speaking about a physical area of land, but that area of land is never to be separated from the fact that it's the land of God's presence, from the fact that it's the land in which God will choose a place to set his name there. It is the land that is going to enjoy the temple, the presence of God in the temple with his people and those as symbols of the ultimate dwelling of God with his people, which is the third strand of the covenant. I will be their God, they shall be my people, and I will walk with them, I will dwell with them, I will be with them. They got a taste of that in enjoying the land and that is brought to its fullness in heaven. And I rather think that at the present, in the present apostolic age, that promise is generalized in a spiritual way. And Paul says, you are the temple. It's not limit, it's not in real estate that you can work out where this privilege is to be enjoyed. It's wherever God is present in dwelling his people. It's, it's universalized at that level. So that the land promise doesn't speak quite so much of this present age. But it does speak to us of the new Jerusalem and what will be hereafter. Thank you. Yes, Brian. I wonder if Professor Mackay would like to make any comment about... Uh 
covenant and circumcision. Oh, we're getting closer to the word. <laughs> getting closer to it. Almost there. Almost there. Uh, in what respect? I'm sorry. <laughs> circumcision is a particular aspect of the obedience that is required of Abraham and his family after him. It is a mark of, well, at one level, it's another blood ritual. It is something that is very much in the age before Christ, and it is a mark of the fact that they are viewing, they are being taught to view the uh, promises as extending into future generations. So that circumcision is speaking of covenant allegiance. God required it. It is speaking of the way in which the covenant will work itself out in coming generations. And it is also speaking of the need for covenant purity. If you look at the scriptural usage of uncircumcised, the emphasis on those who are uncircumcised is that they are those who are living at a natural level, are living apart from God. And so the rite of circumcision spoke also of the need for spiritual cleansing, for spiritual uh, separation and dedication to God. Those seem to be these three areas that are evident on the face of the Old Testament. Stop there. Question time is always up, and you still haven't asked the question you want to answer. No, I don't want to answer. Oh, I see. I right. Is there anyone else that wants, who hasn't yet asked a question who wants to, to put one? Yes, Paul. It's about this idea of sacrifice. Reading Genesis 4, that Cain and had this innate desire to sacrifice to God. And throughout the Old Testament, it's a prominent theme. Mm-hmm. But since Christ, have nations around the world had this desire within to sacrifice, has it vanished completely? It seems that other nations as well, we don't know about the other nations that sacrificed their sons and daughters. What's happened to the human need to give sacrifice? Well, I think there's two things. One is it continued to exist for a long time. I was reading recently about the Aztecs uh, and the elaborate sacrificial rituals that existed there till the 16th, 17th century. Eh, yes, 1500s, Spanish. Um... And then, in the light of Christian truth, put as many quotes around it as you want, uh, the aspect of human sacrifice became not acceptable anymore. So if you're looking around, you will still find many uh, peoples that do engage in animal sacrifice of one sort or another, but generally, in areas where Christian influence of even the mildest sort uh, has not been prevalent. I think it's uh, also, if reports that one hears is true, is something that begins to, to raise itself again, to become more prominent uh, when Christianity and Christian influence recedes. Uh, And it's rather like things like demon possession. It's rather like things 
that uh, cannot stand the, the light of Christian truth become, became to a very large extent um, unknown in areas where Christian truth was prevalent, but are always ready the, the, the strong man's always ready to come back with seven more into an area wherever there's a spiritual vacuum. And you see that in the current rise of demonism in certain places and in certain black magic rituals that involve killing of animals still. That it is a man can't, mankind can't escape from the heritage of what the, the imp- remaining impress of, of what God has made us in the first place. We, we can try and suppress it, we can try and run away from it, but there's still conscience, there's still an awareness of guilt, there is still only a certain number of ways in which that can show itself, and unless the, the light of truth is savingly applied, then it does break out once more. So that, yes, in the ancient world there was sacrifice, very common. But then the light was focused in on Israel, and only stray beams were getting out to the other nations. Since the spread of Christianity, the light has become much more diffuse to the nations, and it has banished a great deal of error. But if that light's suppressed, I think you'll find the error creeps back in very speedily.